This week on the Fraternity Story Life podcast, Adam McCready joins us to talk about organizational socialization. The two strongest that affect, that affect change and affect organizational socialization are um, our mentorship and the value of individual beliefs. And reimagining the new member experience. I would start with really thinking about what learning outcomes are related to the competencies um, that newcomers need to see in the organization. Hello, and welcome to the Fraternity Story Life Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Dean, and we're going to get pretty nerdy this week. Two doc students chatting. How much better can it get? I asked Adam to come on the show because of his work looking outside of the field of higher education and fraternity story life to understand practices and behaviors that are relevant to us. It's a practice we should begin adapting more and more in our work. The work we do in the fraternity story life field is so interdisciplinary, yet we often stay within a box of knowledge to do our day-to-day work. Adam and I will chat about some of the organizational socialization research he's been reading, which comes out of human resource literature. There's plenty of other places for us to pull applicable research from. Public health has been very influential in the work we've done around alcohol abuse, sexual assault, and hazing prevention. Adult education influences how we build our training curriculum. Research on self-efficacy or situational strength can influence what we do with leadership development. I could keep going, but I'd love for folks to share some surprising fields they've connected with their work. Tweet at me, at Matt D, or hashtag FSL podcast, and we'll see what we can learn from each other about external academic influences. And now, our guest for the day. Adam McCready is a doctoral student at Boston College. His work revolves around organizational socialization and men and masculinity and how fraternities impact both of those things. Prior to beginning his PhD work, Adam worked for seven years in fraternity sorority life, most recently at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Now here's my conversation with Adam. Hey Adam, how's it going? It's going well, Matt. How are you? I'm doing good. Settling in over here. You're starting what year on, on DOC program? Is it year two or three for you? Uh, this will be year three, uh, believe it or not. Time flies when you're uh, having fun. That's fantastic. Well couple of years I'll be there too, but I'm um, real excited to have you on the on the podcast to talk about doc student life and some of the stuff that you're researching. Um, you know, this is, this will come out around hazing prevention week. And I think the stuff you're looking at around organizational socialization and, and whatnot kind of can influence some of the things that we know around hazing prevention, but also just how we welcome people into our organizations. But before we get there, and I'm totally jumping ahead of myself already because I'm real excited about that, um, you know, before we even talk about what you're doing and researching now, I'd love to hear about your time back in fraternity sorority life in the trenches because I know you served at um, MIT for a little while and, and did some other work in fraternity sorority life. So what drew you to the field? What, what put you into our world? Well, uh, so uh, really taking me back, but um, you know, my adventures in fraternity and sorority life started actually immediately after my undergrad uh, experience when I had the opportunity to, to join the State of Delta Chi staff as a traveling consultant. Um, and, and initially, it was motivated by my my personal commitment to the organization um, and my desire to improve the fraternity and to engage brothers from across the country. Um, and quite honestly, uh, I'm not sure how others get into the field. Um, I, I really, at that time, thought I would be a traveling consultant for a year or two and then move on to other adventures. Um, and, um, but I think while I was certainly very naive at that point in time, and my, certainly my perspective on issues uh, have, have changed drastically since I was 22, I think I've always been spurred by my desire to uh, affect positive organizational change and to, to help others. So that's what drew me in, in that capacity. Um, my transition to a campus-based role occurred uh, primarily for two reasons. One, um, I found when I was traveling that I really loved working with college students, um, and I really enjoyed the atmosphere um, of college campuses. Um, I, I just found travel across country, just the, the differences in culture and um, the, in, in you know, institutional environments really fascinating and um, wanted to kind of find my, my home or, or niche um, on a particular campus. Uh, I think also 
Um, I, I found as a consultant, you know, you're traveling and going locations, you know, two or three days, or by my, my third year, I was doing work on, with either groups that were um, really struggling or high risk management groups or um, some of our newer expansion groups since I was there for, for more extended periods of time. But I kept thinking, well, if I could be here for more than a month, I could really um, affect more change and, um, and get much more engaged in the community. Um, and so that's when I kind of made the, the decision, hey, I want to go uh, get my master's in, in this thing called higher ed and, uh, and you know, make, a, make a career out of it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what, what brought, me, brought me into the trenches. Yeah, I think, I think it's really interesting kind of the desire and, and you noticing that you, know, you could have that greater impact for longstanding change, right? I think um, as a consultant, right, you're, you're there very much like a consultant, um, you know, you can give them information and give them knowledge, but it's up to them what to do with it. And you're not always around to continue to push them to, you know, make use of the training that you've given the students in the different organizations. But then campus-based, you get to actually continue to push and help for positive change. So I think that's really kind of a cool intentionality that you showed there. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I'd be honest too, I think back when I was making transitions, there's some, some ignorance as well, right? I mean, I think um, there's, the grass is greener always on the other side of the coin or the other side of the, uh, of, the, of the fence, right? So you're looking at it from another perspective, I, I just felt like, oh, I can do so much more um, as a campus professional. Um, but I also was completely unaware of some of the, you know, organizational culture, uh, you know, the political, cultural aspects of institutions that um, affect the ability to make, make change. So, um, you know, there's, I, I think campus professionals really can make deep systemic change, um, but I was certainly very ignorant to Right. Yeah. We, we look and we're like, we can do all of this. And then we get there when we recognize all of the, the stakeholders that you actually have to work with and convince. And, and it's not as easy as we, we think or hope it would be. So building, building off of that, um, you know, so you were at New Hampshire, right? And then MIT. Yep. So yeah, uh, my, my first, uh, four and a half years were at uh, University of New Hampshire and then uh, did three years at, at MIT. So what were some of the like most rewarding moments for you? Um, and then maybe like one or two of those like really challenging moments that you were like, okay, this is where I'm really putting my, my skills and knowledge to work. Huh. Yeah, I, mean, I think, um, yeah, maybe sort of the challenges first. <laughs> I think yeah. they, tend to, to stick out a little more, um, but uh, I, my time at UNH, um, really my first two years I think were pretty challenging. Um, I, when I left Bowling Green, um, I really intentionally looked to, to go to a community that um, where, where change from an administrative level and even from a student level uh, was desired and there was motivation to, to make change. Um, and so uh, I was very fortunate. Um, Marianne Lothgraf, who's the, the director of the Memorial Union Building at UNH, and who's still there, um, hired me and really wanted to, to bring in someone who would, would advocate for and push the community in a, in a new direction. Um, but, you know, kind of like I was, I was referencing earlier, um, to make change, you have to um, deal with. Um, politics, both from an institution and an alumni and from students and just um, culture that really wasn't, you know, systemic and was, was not interested in, in, in moving in certain directions. So right. um, my, you know, my, my first two years really dealt with uh, a number of very uh, serious risk-related incidents. Um, and I think one of the more challenging aspects is I quickly developed reputation amongst the students as a, as an enforcer. Um, and, and one story I'll share is that I remember uh, distinctly during a, a president's council meeting, a number of chapter presidents confronted me about their frustrations of being held accountable. 
And uh, I'll never forget that one of the sorority presidents said, Adam, if you keep enforcing the policies, none of us will be left. Uh, and I remember uh, looking her in the eyes and saying, you know, I really don't care uh, who's here. And I have no problem with all of, uh, to bring in entirely new groups uh, to replace those who are here. Um, I care more about the, the actions uh, of our organizations and their, where they embody the values of the group. And right. I can just remember her um, starting to cry and, and shaking her head in disbelief. And uh, you know, like, I, for me, uh, leaving that meeting um, utterly exhausted. Yeah. Um, now, I guess in, in response to your other, other end of the question, um, as far as a, a reward, um, I think one thing I come to recognize in this field is that a lot of the, um, you know, the seeds you sow, you'll never actually see spring, and or you won't see, see spring during your, your tenure as an institution, particularly with like organizational change. Right. Um, and I think one of the more rewarding aspects, if anything, um, has been hearing from uh, various stakeholders, whether it be um, individuals at UNH or headquarters professionals talking about how much the University of New Hampshire community has improved since my departure. Um, and while, while I don't want to take individual credit for, for change, there are a lot of stakeholders involved in that process. Um, you know, I, I hope some of the efforts that I've put in led to those changes. And, and I think it's, again, it's, I do have a sense, um, a sense of pride that the, the community's by and large headed in the right, uh, the, a better direction than where it was when I started. So, um, and then um, uh, another rewarding experience is, is during my second year of my master's work, um, I advocated for wrote the curriculum for um, the inaugural Fidel Kai Preamble Institute, which is the fraternity's value and values and leadership uh, program. Uh, and that program just celebrated its tenth uh, anniversary uh, when it was held this past winter. Wow! Uh, it's been really rewarding to watch and see that program thrive, and I think um, by and large receive positive feedback from um, past participants in the fraternity's leadership. So, um, uh, again, something that, uh, you know, I was really fortunate to kind of get my hands on early and, and, and believe in and to, to see where it's at today has been, been really cool. No, that's really, that's really awesome. Do you get to go back and facilitate that? Yeah, uh, I, I served as a facilitator on it for, uh, I think, the first five years. I was really involved in it. Uh, and then I consciously um, walked away for a few years because I, I, I didn't want it to be the, the Adam McCready program. I wanted it really to, to right. be um, a self-sustaining fraternity program. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I've gone back since then and I think facilitated uh, once or twice. Uh, and But since my, started my PhD work, I just haven't had the opportunity to, to go back. But um, it is nice to go back now and then and, um, and you know, one, see what elements of the uh, initial curriculum I wrote that are still there and then also to kind of see what changes have been made, but to, to generally see some of the cultural shifts that have occurred um, within the organization that um, individuals attribute to the program. Yeah. No, it sounds like, you know, a lot of the focus on your career has been about changing and empowering and impacting organizations and you know, that's what I think we always need in fraternity sorority life is that are those individuals who will come in and say, hey, let's hold ourselves to these standards and how are we going to do this and, and make this effort? And so, you know, while our happy sorority president that you mentioned earlier might not have been too thrilled with being held accountable, I think now she's probably looking back and saying, I learned some stuff from that and perhaps that's affecting her, her day to day, even if you didn't get to see it while you were there. Um, but, you know, I appreciate your, your approach to really just the accountability and crafting that change. So, and then, you know, you, you've already made mention, we've talked about this a little bit, kind of um, teasing it, but you started your PhD um, now two years ago, um, as you enter year three. And I think, you know, I think I'm seeing a lot of folks in our fraternity sort of life community look at, toy with starting a PhD, either full-time or part-time, you know, in one one avenue or another. But how did you know that it was time to, you know, move from the fraternity sorority life and, and go full time into 
this wonderful world of, of doctoral studies? <laughs> yeah, and I don't think there was um, one uh, singular factor that motivated me to apply for a PhD, a PhD program. Um, however, I think thinking back on it, there were some key contributors. Uh, first, um, I was at a transitional point in my uh, professional career back when I um, initially took the, the GRE and applied. Uh, I um, had outgrown my role at MIT, um, but really wasn't confident that I had set myself up well to, to transition into the career path that I, I wanted and aspired. And um, I, I knew, I thought at that point in time, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do for experience for transitory life. Um, I was looking at other functional areas like uh, uh, student conduct, um, Title IX, and, and even assessment. Um, but I, I really kind of um, wanted to, to broaden my horizons. Um, right. I, I think second, um, at the time I submitted my applications for PhD work, um, my my son was uh, was two and a half, and I thought, hey, I'm really ser- serious about earning a PhD. Uh, I should do it now before he gets too much older because I, I really didn't want to spend his entire childhood um, it, being a, a, a full-time or part-time PhD student. So I kind of thought, look, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to I'm going to do it now. Um, and then I, I think the third option, the third, third aspect was um, I one of the career paths I was debating was uh, whether to pursue a, a faculty career or not. Um, and I, I knew that I really valued uh, learning and, and, and research, um, but I, I thought, hey, if I, if I go full-time, I'll have the opportunity to, to really be involved in research, and if needed, I can set myself up for, uh, for a potential uh, tenure faculty um, uh, path and, and go in that direction, um, or I can realize, hey, that's not for me, and then I, I can still go back into um, you know, an administrative or more of a practical capacity uh, and so um, that was a, a big motivation for, for going full time and um, so yeah that's kind of those were the, I think the three larger things I think also I, I realized um, that I when I was to look period of when I was happiest is when I was learning in the classroom in my master's work or other experiences or um, I you know, I think back on it now, looking back at my uh, my, my resume, I, I can split down myself on you know, university assessment committees or, uh, or various projects or teams. Right. Um, and, and realizing it now, like, I, I always had a passion for research. Um, and so I, I, those things, I think, certainly played a large role in my, my interest in the PhD program as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, you touched on Kind of both the timing aspect, right, and, and family plays a family plays a role in that. And um, you know, I, I know that I see the pictures from you on Facebook, and I know that you still make time for your, you know, for your your partner and your son, and, and how wonderful that is. And you just got back from a, a cool vacation as we're recording this, um, you know, right before the the semester gets hectic. Um, so I think that's really cool to to weigh those things of timing, but then also you know, you knowing and thinking about here are the different options and thinking here's what that first course would be, um, going that faculty route and teaching and continuing to do the research, but then keeping yourself open to, you know, some of those other options in the administration and some higher level, like strategic focuses in student affairs and in higher ed. Um, So I think, you know, I think you went about this in a a really smart and positive way and weren't just doing it because you were like, oh, hey, I guess I got to do this thing. Um, right. Um, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. And like you kind of said, I, I wanted to, I, in my PhD work, I've been very intentional about trying to get as many experiences as possible to one, um, increase my own, um, competencies and awareness, but I think also to open or potentially open as many doors as possible. Um, and so, um, it, you know, even if I go back into an administrative capacity, um, post PhD, I feel like I've developed um, a number of, uh, of tools um, that will make me an effective, uh, you know, learner or student um, for the rest of my life, and um, and I think that 
benefit my, my my career direction, you know, beyond getting the, the credential of the uh, of, of the PhD. If I when that day comes, um, <laughs> it goes farther away than than maybe it really is. Or, um, but uh, yeah, hopefully I get there. Yeah, I I have no doubt that you will. Um, <laughs> so how you know our, our conversations? I'm like, yeah, Adam will Adam will hit that. Um, you know. Three years, three years from now, you're going to have that really cool robe and the Funka hat. So, um, but, you know, you've, you've also been, you know, some of our conversations have revolved around the focus that you're pursuing and, and talk to me a little bit about like what's fascinated you in the research and how you were like, Hey, this is what I really want to delve a little bit more into. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, to be honest with you, it started off with just, you know, work in the trenches, right? I mean, I, I think um, my research agenda has kind of ambled to where I've, I've developed more of a, a set focus right now. Um, I, I think I initially started off um, when I was applying to programs or even at the end of my uh, experience at MIT, really fascinated by the question of, um, of why do college um, students, but in particular fraternity men, um, who perceive themselves as good uh, cause harm to themselves or others. And, you know, in particular, like, why did fraternity men engage in all these antisocial behaviors um, that are just to the to the extreme? Right. Um, and then kind of building off that, like, what are the contextual factors that, that dictate how college students, um, and again, in particular, how fraternity men behave? Uh, and so over time, as I've examined that question and, and kind of really delved into the literature, um, I've, I've began to consider and understand how organizational socialization um, impacts new members uh, to adopt certain norms perpetuated by their groups. And in particular, I'm, um, uh, I'm interested in how uh, fraternities and other single-sex organizations influence men to adopt um, certain masculine norms right. um, that, uh, that influence their, their you know, poor, judge, poor judgment and, and behavior. Um, and what I find really fascinating is that um, there's, there's very little research looking at how groups um, influence um, men to, to, to become men. You know, there's, uh, there's concern about it, but no one's really looked at it from an, from an organizational socialization perspective. Right. I think we've done, been doing a lot of it from, like, the one-on-one um, socialization or, you know, some of the peer norming, um, but not necessarily what the actual organization um, does as somebody joins and, and becomes more embedded in it. Um, so that's perfect. Talk to me more about this. Like, what have you been finding in terms of the socialization process and how it affects our, I guess, primarily young men who are who are joining organizations? Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of the next level, I have to learn about organizational socialization. Um, the, um, the bulk of the literature out there is all uh, rested in um, the, the business literature and looking at newcomers to the workforce, right. um, which, uh, you know, I, I believe is applicable to um, uh, college students, but no one's really uh, examined um, uh, that population in, in detail. Um, as far as my research, um, I've looked at how uh, socialization tactics have been implemented by organizations to, to transition newcomers into their communities. Um, and I'm, I'm using newcomer kind of uh, inclusive, inclusively. That's a, a, a term used in the in the, the work socialization literature. Um, and so you could use newcomer, um, you could use new member, small parties, both simultaneously. Right. Um, so within that that research area, um, framed uh, by a lot of um, uh, Shine's work and his work with um, online, uh, they developed a theory of organizational socialization um, and other scholars have found evidence that there are certain um, socialization tactics um, that promote newcomer adjustment and learning um, more than others. So, um, for example, the, the, the uh, 
a number of scholars have found that um, are called institutional, uh, I'm sorry, institutionalized tactics. So those where newcomers are grouped together, um, clearly distinguished from um, from veteran members. Um, the new member programs or newcomer experiences operate in a very sequential, um, fixed manner. Um, you know, there's a definitive start and date. Um, and then also um, there's um, mentorship that's intentionally provided from veteran members to newcomers. Um, those efforts have been shown to promote more learning um, than uh, socialization tactics that are geared specifically to individuals. So uh, those that are a bit more informal or um, where newcomers are almost automatically incorporated to be the organization from the beginning. So, uh, you know, I think that's fascinating. Uh, yeah. Another end is that scholars have found that um, socialization practices that uh, value the identity and beliefs of newcomers uh, is negatively related to the development of uh, newcomers um, into the organizational culture. So I'll, I'll let that sit with listeners for a second, because um, in a sense what we're, we're saying is that, um, you know, if you want organization, uh, if you want an individual to, uh, to, to change their behavior, um, the organizations um, that strive to place the organizational values above individual values uh, can more effectively to change and assimilate newcomers to the organization. Yeah, as, as you said that, I was thinking, I was like, can he say that again? Because it seems completely counterintuitive that, or like backwards, um, that we would not value somebody's values and then they would become like more knowledgeable or more socialized into the organization. But then it also makes sense, right, that they're throwing off who they are um, or who they have been in the past to em- quote unquote embrace um, yeah. organizational values. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um... I think this may be putting the the, the cart before a horse in our conversation. <laughs> but I think it gives some credence onto why um, undergraduates and securities and sororities or in other organizations that matter rely on hazing. Um, because if they if their organizational aim or their aim through hazing is to promote organizational simulation um, and to you know, diminish individual identity, then you know hazing might be an effective mechanism to that end. Um, and um, it, or not effective, it might be a, um, a, a, it might appear as a simple mechanism to that end, rather. Um, and um, it also, from the other aspects of uh, institutionalized tactics, if um, it, it also shows why um, chapters or groups that rely on. Um, like you remember our pledge class models or very structured processes they rely on it because it's it, it seems effective uh, and research has shown that it, it is effective um, now how what they're actually socializing uh, socializing members too is the issue um, right. the mechanisms in, in practice um, might be um, might be effective and the most simplistic so when you're looking at something out like um, having to put the least amount of effort in to make change, uh, those mechanisms might work the best. Huh. Um, but you know, but let's flip the coin a little bit. So yeah, uh, the other research on this though has shown that um, within organizational socialization, um, that newcomers' um, self-efficacies um, and the, their own personal proactive behaviors um, promote their uh, organization abilities. So, um, you know, said more clearly, like the more confident a newcomer is in his or her own abilities, and the more he or she seeks out knowledge, awareness, and uh, skills to succeed in the organization, the better he or she transitions into the organization. So, um, but it's a lot of those, uh, those, those uh, institutionalized practices I was just discussing earlier. Um, researchers have found that institutionalized practices um, stifle newcomers' uh, proactive behaviors. And so, um, and while research really doesn't exist on this too much, one could surmise too that um, these institutionalized practices, particularly the, the aspect of you know, diminishing individual identity, also might diminish um, an individual self efficacy. 
so you know if you're thinking about that capacity on one on, on one side of the coin it might seem like a really effective and easy way to bring someone into an organization yet you're also diminishing an individual's capacity to to transition into the organization on their own right so um and I think that might be a really key learning point um, for for undergraduate students um, and and even professionals to consider. Um, so again, the, the mechanism might seem really easy, and, and um, but really we need much more aware and cognizant of of um, newcomer self-efficacy. Um, and I think on a, a recruitment standpoint, this again might seem. Um, very apparent when I say it, but you should be recruiting individuals who have um, strong self-efficacy and who um, have proactive behaviors, right? Um, right. And, you know, I think those are things we already think about when we're trying to educate members on, on, on who to recruit. Um, we might just turn it a little bit uh, different than that. Um, the other key finding, and there, there I could go on and on about um, findings to discuss, but I think another one that's really important is um, there's a, a group of tactics that have been um, defined um, by, by scholars called um, the, the social uh, tactics of, of org socialization. Um, and in particular, what they found, uh, again, I talked about the, the value of individual beliefs and, and uh, identities. Um, they found that the, the two strongest that affect, um, that affect change and affect organizational socialization our, um, our mentorship and the value of individual beliefs. So um, the more a, um, oh, I, I'm sorry, and, and those, uh, if you invest in mentorship and evaluating individual beliefs, what tends to happen is those organizations um, within a workforce have greater job satisfaction, better retention, and they have a better perception related to their fit within the organization. So, uh, person or fit, you might have, you, you might be familiar with that concept. Right. Um, so, um, you know, while um, initiating individuals' values might um, assimilate them into the culture, it may diminish their retention in the organization. Right. So, they might they might come in and, and drink Kool Aid, but it doesn't mean they're going to stay around for the long haul. Um, but I, I think it, it speaks highly of why groups, whether um, intentionally or unintentionally, have um, you know big and little programs or, or mentorship opportunities, because those are, if done correctly, can be really strong opportunities to, to bring a newcomer into an organization. Um, so, yeah, I think those are some of the, 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 the fascinating um, aspects that can related to to workplace. And I've already kind of implied, I think they're certainly applicable to fraternities which just really haven't been explored in detail. Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited to see because I think some of the research that you're going to be doing or, or, or planning to do revolves around kind of taking that and then applying it into fraternity sorority socialization, particularly around like um, male behavioral norms. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think from what I want to look at is how, how do those tactics and the implementation of those tactics and, and other um, and other factors. How do those influence how um, men joining a single sex organization um, uh, adopt certain norms? Right. So, um, if we're looking at um, binge drinking as a um, a, a masculine gender uh, performance, right? Right. So, what motivates um, someone or what, what tactic in particular? Um, is um, effective at getting someone to, to change their behavior related to that norm and, and by knowing that you can then can think about certain intervention strategies um, or design your education in a way that might help um, diminish or, or change that norm so um, but as you mentioned earlier I think a lot of the masculine research or research in general on um, uh, fraternity members tend to look at individuals but really how can we look at um, making organizational change to um, proactively change behavior right well and also I think you know it also tends to look at 
right? Once they've already joined the organization, how the organization uh-huh. then continues to, right, convince them or, or they fall into the organizational norms. But those are, those are learned behaviors. Those are all learned patterns. Um, and so I think, you know, what you're looking at, and I think I want to, you know, going back to kind of the conversation of, um, you know, the, the two different, I suppose, ways we socialize in, right? So the uh-huh. one where we kind of put them in groups and, and we want them to learn the organization's values and kind of put those above themselves. Is that a fair restatement of the kind of first thing that you were talking about? Um, you know, the one side of the coin? Um, and then versus the, the other side where, you know, we focus a little bit more on self-efficacy and, and helping them to kind of maybe bring their identity and values into the organization and see kind of how everything matches up, um, right, to, to maintain that self-efficacy. And I think, you know, um, when, I, when, I, when I hear that, I hear, you know, one is a very, can be semi-short-sighted, right, that it's easy to do the the first one right get them in groups do this um but then the the long-term payoff is not as as good for the organization or for the individual um as the we'll call it the more complex one of getting those mentorship roles helping somebody to self-actualize and and find those things um and so you know how do we continue to increase that and increase the self-efficacy in our in our new member socialization processes is going to be pretty key yeah, I, moving forward. I think, it's, I think it's tough, right? And I think you know when you're uh, from your comments and um, one thing I think of right is um, you think about when a headquarters from a fraternity's real life perspective goes in and tries to reorganize a chapter, right? Or you try to work with a chapter that had. Uh, a hazing incident to, to change their member education program, right? Right. Um, and I think that the problem we face um, with that is that um, the students you're dealing with have seen the perceived benefits or ability to, to change newcomer behavior with their prior program, and um, the individualized strategies that are often implemented in um, Certain headquarter um, member programs um, may not affect change as quickly, right? Right. And so you try to implement that, and members are like, "Well, I saw this before; it worked; was way more effective." Um, and so, uh, and you know, again, perceived easier to implement. So we're going to go back to that. You know, we're all, you know, we won't. We'll do this on the surface. We'll do this on the side because it works, yeah, uh, or it's, per- it's perceived to work. So. Um, I think part of it is if you're trying to, to change behavior, you really have to, it has to, it, it, you really need a lot of stakeholders involved in the process um, for a, a longer period of time in order to, to show the, the positive change. So um, it, you know, it can't be like um, just a one semester initiative. It's probably going to be an ongoing intervention for a longer period of time. Right, and you're probably um, going to have to have some people there who can continue to remind the the students of, hey, here's what this is doing, and here's where we're, you know, what we're looking at, and, and the positive gains for you. Yeah, exactly. I think you know, in order for them to see the positive benefits as far as like member retention and the like, I mean, that's that's a year or two process. Right. And so, um, you know, again, um, going back to some of the comments made earlier, or, organizational change is slow. And the, the challenge I think we're facing at all times with um, the fraternity's right population is they want to see uh, change uh, immediately or, the, or they look at things in, in terms of uh, semesters or, or a single academic year. And they aren't thinking about change over the term of their entire undergrad experience or, or beyond. Right. So, um, and, and I think the other thing too, right, is I think that some of the... Um, member class uh, models can work. I, I think what often happens um, within chapters that are, particularly those that are creating their own programs, is that the curriculum is put together in a, like a haphazard where they aren't intentionally thinking about um, the, um, the outcomes they're, they're aiming to achieve. Um, they might think, oh, we want to promote solidarity, but they aren't thinking about 
what they're how's it, what, what they're actually doing to to promote solidarity or their you know their um, not considering the ramifications of how their actions might uh, impede other gains as far as like retention and satisfaction and whatnot and the like. So I think um, helping groups be much more intentional in um, their development of uh, education programs can be uh, very key as well. Right. And, you know, to give some of our undergraduate students a little, you know, a little not credit, but leeway, right? They're, they're still undergraduates and learning how to put all these things together. So, you know, you and I are looking at this through, um, you know, many, several years of experience, many years of experience, I guess, if you combine both of us. Um, and, you know, we can say, hey, this, this doesn't work, but they're, you know, they're 20 years old. And, and so, again, having some external or additional help or assistance for them in crafting these programs um, yep. can be really... Really useful. And, you know, the, the other thing I, I, I started to talk to my head and I'm thinking about is that, um, you know, from a, from a headquarters perspective, right, you think about uh, groups that are doing expansion, right? Yep. Um, they're, they're recruiting individuals who typically have pretty high self efficacies um, and are, um, who display a number of very proactive behaviors, right? They're, they're go getters, they're people who, um, you know, using some some language from fired up to the horses, right? Right. Um, and I think the problem we have is that we recruit those individuals into new chapters because they're 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 interested in in being self starters. Um, yet um, we also then provide them or allow them to create you remember uh, programming and so organizational structures that then inhibit those very behaviors that that they displayed. So, um, and then we wonder why we are recruiting more, more horses into the organization. Well, is it because the, the org structure is, is flawed and is causing people who um, are those horses to look at the organization and go, why the heck would I want to join that group? So I, I think being very conscious about how you're structuring the organization um, related to newcomer socialization um, should, be, should be a consistent thought of all yeah and I think you know as we as we talk about that um, you know I, I I'm wondering you know if, if you were designing like the entire fraternity sorority new member process right mm-hmm. we've got new guys they're coming into our organization and you were building this thing from scratch knowing what you know like what might be the overarching design for you would you continue our current model? Would you move to a more mentorship? Like, what would this look like? Um, yeah, I mean, um, first I want to say that um, I, I think there's a number of contextual factors that influence processes, right? So um, environmental and individual factors. Uh, I could get all broth and burner on you, but like I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, <laughs> if we're talking about um, all the, the ecosystems. Um, but... So I, I don't believe there's a like a one size fits all right. model, and I think that's often a problem in our in the field of current story life. Um, but um, I, I think that um, for one, I would start with really thinking about what learning outcomes are related to the competencies um, that newcomers need to succeed in the organization. So I think. Um, one of the problems we have with new member programs is it tries to be an all-encompassing learning experience. It tries to teach newcomers everything they need to know um, about fraternity and membership, and that's just not possible. So re- really, what are the key outcomes that it, it depends on or- each organization that is needed to transition someone effectively into an organization? Mm-hmm. So, um, and and try to try to simplify it. And, and, and again, don't make a new member program more than it is. Um, you can continue to do education. I mean, it's like um, professional development for fraternity and professionals. Like, how are you doing continued education once someone is a part of the organization? And I think, I think certain fraternities and sororities out there are already thinking about that and doing it well. Um, so, um, I think the other aspect um, I would consider is, um, and this goes back to the, the, the literature, is that a, if you're going to use a um, a newer, newer program model is that your program should be very transparent, it should be finite, um, and the model should be intentionally sequential 
um, to build up to those learning outcomes. So, um, and that, um, that, you know, you should be able to carefully articulate to individuals on what they're going to get out of the experience and when it will start to end. And, uh, again, I think um, that might hold true in, um, in, in certain organizations out there. You know, I can think of um, NPC groups often are like that, and, and I think fraternities are um, in NIC and, and the other, um, uh, you know, Alpha or NPHC are, 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 are moving in that direction. Um, but I think that's often where you caught up, is we're not explicitly transparent about what's going on. Um, and then the, the third aspect is I would really heavily incorporate mentorship in the program. Um, and in particular, I really think that um, new members should be intentionally paired with a carefully vetted and educated mentor, uh, and even potentially uh, alumni or volunteer mentors, so beyond the, the, the undergraduate organization. Right. Um, and, and I think that's kind of um, one great opportunity out there, right, is um, we do campuses spend a significant amount of time training officers or even uh, our national organizations spend um, time and resources to train officers. Uh, I really think we should be considering do we need to invest as heavily or more heavily in our, our, our mentorship training. Mm. So, um, you know, to get really wild, should we have every uh, big brother or big sister or uh, whatever you want to call your mentor, should they be trained and certified? Oh, yeah. Um, whether it be at a campus level or uh, an organizational level. Um, because if, if this mentorship aspect is really that important to org socialization, um, and our orgs really believe in lifelong friendship and continuous improvement, we really need to invest in, um, in, in mentorship. I think that's a vital aspect toward um, socialization of social organizations. Yeah, I kind of like that. That diff- that three prong approach that you have, especially, especially that last point about let's really train these mentors because I think so often it's you know who's got a light class load or you know who doesn't already have a a little or or somebody that they're mentoring and so let's give them somebody and and maybe they don't have somebody they're mentoring for for a real reason um, you know and and it makes me think about the business world right there are people who we want to be socializing incoming new employees, right? Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they're probably also the ones who maybe we want as officers in the organization too. Um, but there might also be other ones who just haven't risen to that to that role, but they still are good exemplars of the organization and, and good mentors. And, you know, let's, let's train them and help them to be more effective. And I think you're onto something. And even as, even as you're saying that, I, I, I was thinking about, you know, we do a lot of training with officers around decreasing risky behavior, right? And, you know, here's how to step in and here's how to do risk management properly. But if we were to take that same time and and work with or, you know, split it in half and, and take half of it and work to increase the mentor skills, perhaps we could bring and socialize our new members in a way that that wouldn't be as big of an issue because we're socializing them right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I think you're onto something there. Well, I think the, you know the other aspect of that too, right? Is we often do um, required new member workshops or trainings, right? So we bring all the new members in and tell them about the policies or how the experience should be. Right. Yeah, they hold. They typically. They hold zero power. And we, 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 we would hope organizations um, are, are equitable and treat all of us fairly, but, um, you know, clearly based on hazing incidents or just other um, anecdotal experiences, that necessarily isn't true across the board. Um, so those members aren't empowered to, uh, to affect the change that we're trying to challenge them with. Whereas if we're training the, the, the mentors, um, you know, one would hope that those individuals have um, have more uh, power within their organizations to to affect change. So I think it's a much more pragmatic approach to um, making the change that you know, a number of us want to see within the, the fraternity and sorority life 
I think the, the challenge, right, is, um, is is one trying to recruit the right mentors and um, and then getting them to agree to these um, the, to these processes and these educational efforts. But I think um, I think it's worth investing in because I think it's it's really what's going to make the change um, in our organizations. Yeah. No, and you know that was one of the other things I wanted to ask about was just how socialization and using it might affect some some broader scale cultural change. And I think, you know, we you touched on that with this idea that if we have um, these mentors, one, we're helping them to maybe be more proactive too in terms of changing the culture, even outside of their quote-unquote mentoring responsibilities. But then as they help to socialize, they're also further creating some more cultural change uh, by bringing those new members in in a different way of socialization and into a different set of like cultural norms. Um, and so I think that's, that's really cool. Are there other thoughts about around like how socialization could affect cultural change for us? Yeah. I mean, uh, so again, with my research looking at, um, in particular, um, uh, masculinity, um, I, I believe that fraternities and sororities, uh, and, uh, particularly those that, uh, possess significant social capital and dominant standings on our campuses, and, and this is, uh, you can find this in, um, like, the campuses' work, um, or, you know, some of the other work related to fraternities and sororities, um, but the, those groups tend to perpetuate, uh, unhealthy masculine norms, um, and if you caught that carefully, you heard me, yes, I think that sororities also perpetuate masculine norms, uh, yeah. because, they perpetuate competition and binge drinking and, and other behaviors that are, are, are generally unhealthy and, and largely defined as masculine norms. Um, so that said, I think that newcomers are socialized to adopt these norms during their neural processes. Um, and if our organizations really are about uh, fostering better men and, and better women, it starts with thinking about um, how gender norms are um, promoted and socialized through the newcomer experience. So I, I think one way to affect the masculinities espoused by fraternities and, and sororities is to modify uh, socialization tactics. Uh, for example, like a fraternity and sorority um, that is trying to force um, members to conform to their values and beliefs over their individual beliefs is really just promoting a, a very rigid form of what it means to be um, a man or a woman. Right. Um, I think creates both um, hostile environments for, for students, and I, I think those are the groups that are typically pointed out um, by other stakeholders as um, problematic or the real issue with fraternities and sororities. So I, I think, you know, again, how can we tweak um, work socialization? So how we get, um, and, and Michael Kimmel talks about this, and uh, I, I've heard, uh, you know, Gentry McCurry mentioned this a number of occasions, but if we really want to um, to promote better men and better women, we need men and women who are serving as mentors who are, are um, promoting, like, well, what I would call our, is, is called in research, you know, mature masculinity or um, a, a mature definition of, of manhood or what it means to be a woman. Right. Um, and so having mentors who um, have more life experience than, than our college students, I think, is a true benefit. Um, and can hopefully then begin to challenge some of those norms. And I think, um, you know, uh, Mike McCree and, and others talk about this a lot. I, I think we need to stop thinking about our organizations as, um, as just undergrad organizations. Um, and in the sense that uh, if it's about lifelong brotherhood and sisterhood, we need to incorporate um, more mentors and more involvement um, from individuals who are who are further along in their um, in their lives. Yeah, and that you know that mirrors some of the stuff that I've been I've been looking at too in terms of rites of passage and and the need mm-hmm. for right like that older male mentor to come in and um, on the male side at least um, to come in and, and help to not show the way but. Um, kind of serve as a model and to help inspire and, and um, draw out a lot of those like really good mature masculine characteristics that are 
um, latent inside of our, uh, you know, aspirant members, I think. So, um, you know, I hope any, you know, alumni that are listening just get involved, right, in, in those processes and, and continue to serve in that mentoring capacity because the more of that we have, the, the stronger the socialization efforts are going to be and, you know, perhaps we can start to decrease some of that risky behavior. Yeah, I think, you know, so the, um, for some of the listeners to consider, right, is that, uh, you know, I think we often struggle with trying to recruit um, chapter advisors and other volunteers to our um, fraternity initiatives um, because sometimes those those roles are, one, a little ambiguous in nature, um, and they may not be very finite as far as responsibilities, but if you're recruiting um uh, an alumnus or alumna um, to, to serve as a, a mentor, um, it, one, it, um, and you're in the bulk of it, it maybe, it, maybe the key responsibilities are finite and relate to the, um, the, 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 the specific transitional period of the newcomer, right? Um, but it's a clear responsibility. It's a one-on-one engagement. Um, and it might be an easier sell um, and uh, to the population as opposed to trying to recruit someone to take on some larger responsibilities. So right. it could be a good um, a grassroots way to get individuals more involved in our organizations. Yeah, and it's a good entry point, right? And they're not, there's not as much like paperwork to remember or deadlines or policies and things. It's just, you know, be yourself and, and contribute to another person's life. Um, exactly. So, well... Hey, Adam, I want to thank you so much for um, you know, jumping on on and sharing some of the stuff that you've been learning and, and kind of how you've been applying, I think, some concepts that exist in one world to a, to a brand new world. I think that's a really um, cool thing that you're doing through your doctoral research, and, and I can't wait to see all the different things that come out of it for you and, and for publications that you have and, and then how that might impact our field. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love any, any final thoughts you have around socialization, fraternity story life, um, before we kind of wrap up here. I, I mean, I think, um, I, I, I <laughs> yeah, I think for our, our listeners, it's important to consider that I don't think individuals are, are trying to be malicious with the theme of our education, right? And, and I don't know what, what many, many listeners would consider to begin with, um, what I think, though, is that the mechanisms they're implementing um, are um, either done haphazardly um, or they're repetitious of old behaviors. Um, and so, you know, we really, if we just tweak or um, can make certain changes to new socialization, um, we can really, I think, make some drastic changes to our organizations. Um, but they should be founded in, in, in research and evidence, um, and, and we can't just think that anecdotally uh, what applied on campus A will work on campus B, so I think you also need to consider context in that situation, but I, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm biased here, but I think org socialization, and in particular New York socialization, can provide a really fascinating avenue um, for the future of returning story membership. Awesome. And... You know, one final question before I let you go: If some if folks are interested in um, channeling their their inner nerd, um, like <laughs> like you and me, um, who are some of those authors? I know you mentioned Edgar Schein. Um, who are some other folks that they they could be looking at? Yeah, uh, great question. So um, I, I think uh, a lot of the work has been done by uh, Blake Ashforth um, and. Um, um, and uh, Alan Sachs, they've, they've done a lot of work related to um, new emergency socialization and, and um, uh, related to, to organizations. Um, gosh. Um, let's see, anyone else that I would throw out there? Um, yeah, Elizabeth Morrison as well. Um, but I, I really think I would encourage them to start with looking at what uh, Ashforth and, and Sachs have done, and that'll lead them in a pretty good avenue of, of what's out there. Um, but 
applied to college students. Awesome. Very cool. And I'll link to, to some of those things in, in our show notes. So Adam, again, thank you so much for, for joining and for, for sharing your, your knowledge and, and research and things that you're, you're learning. Um, and I wish you the best as you, as you begin and, and get into year three. Um, looks, you know, you're almost done with all that coursework. Thank you so much for, uh, for, for letting me chat with you today, Matt. And, uh, I wish you the best of luck on your PhD journey as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Adam. Bye-bye. And that's our show for the day. Many thanks to you for listening and to Adam for sharing his thoughts and experiences with us. As always, if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the podcast, leave a note on iTunes or tweet at me at Matt Deke. And until next time, stay curious.